This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Wheeler area, located at 1500 South Allen L. Bean Boulevard in Wheeler, Texas. Our regular meeting times are at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. each Sunday. Come join us as we seek to worship God in spirit and in truth. So let's, let's get into this and, and see what, what we can understand about Peter, Peter's teaching on this. Like I said, the first thing that I need to understand is why. Why do, why do we need to consider this? Uh, Peter warned that false teachers would arise. They would lead many to follow their destructive ways. We saw in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1 uh, in our previous study that they will bring upon themselves swift destruction. That's an interesting phrase and an interesting term. We found in verse 3 that uh, now of a long time lingereth not and their damnation slumbereth not. You know, we are prone to think from time to time, well, God's, God's sleeping on these false teachers. You know, he's... Maybe he's not concerned about him anymore. No, he, he's made his determination. He, he's made his judgment on them. The, the time of their, of their uh, him being, uh, being long-suffering with them is coming to an end. It may not be on our timeline, but it's on his timeline. He's not forgetting about them. God is not asleep. He understands exactly what's going on. These false teachers, the Bible teaches, uh, face certain judgment. And Peter gives three examples. And I found these examples rather interesting. He, he gives examples of a time in the past where God executed judgment on people, on evil people. And Peter reiterates those things and compares them to what's going on at that time. And what, what will be the, the uh, destiny, the end of these false teachers by by looking into things that happened in the past. And the first one he mentions is, uh, he talks about the angels who sinned. In 2 Peter 2, verse 5 there, Peter writes, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So he's, he's got quite a bit to say right here about it. The Bible says that he spared not the angels that sinned. He spared them not, but he cast them down to hell. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later on. Uh, but he, Peter also refers back to the ancient world. And by ancient world, I mean the, the time before the flood. Second Peter 2 and verse 5, And spared not that old, the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. So we see that uh, Peter refers back to a time before the flood or around the flood, what happened actually at the time of the flood. And he also mentions in this same, in this same chapter the old cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he, he writes in verses 6 through 9, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to preserve the unjust until the day of judgment to be punished. So these, these three examples that 
Peter talks about of judgment, he compares to what's going to happen to false teachers in the future at the, at the final judgment. And he mentions these, these three things in parallel. So I want us to consider them a little deeper this evening and, and see what parallels we can draw from them. <clears throat> we see in each one of these examples uh, God's judgment on the ungodly. On the wicked, it's, it's in plain view. It's not hard to see. It's not hidden in, in deep words and hard meanings. It's, it's really to, easy to see God's judgment in each one of these examples. In some of these examples, we also see something else, and that's a, a hope, uh, a hope we have in avoiding these things. And I want to talk about that a little bit. <clears throat> so let's begin this evening by reviewing a little bit about the angels who sinned. <clears throat> Very little is known. Very little is known about the circumstances, the particular circumstances of these angels that sinned. We know that Jude makes reference to them also in verse 6 of the book of Jude. He said, and the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. He's talking about these angels that sinned. So these angels did not keep their estate. Now what does that mean? What's that talking about? Well, estate in this, in this scripture means a, a principality. So it means something important. The word properly means beginning or commencement. That means the start of something, the beginning of something. And when you add the, make the addition of the word first, it denotes a point of rank or honor, a preeminence, if you will, a precedence. So in this situation, these angels that are being talked about refers to a rank, a dignity, if you will, which they had in heaven, an importance that they had in heaven. And in spite of that importance or that rank, that preeminence, they chose not to keep it. They chose to, to desire something else, to be somewhere else. Why did they do that? I'm sure I have no idea. But that's, that's what part of the problem was. They had a desire that was not a, a natural desire, apparently. And if you move on to, to uh, the rest of that verse, it says, but they left but left their own habitation. They left. They left. They weren't pushed out. They weren't shoved out. But they left their own habitation. Now what's that talking about? Well, it means here that heaven was their native home. That, that was their dwelling place. That was their home. They left it by some sin. We see that uh, by what the scripture we read there in Peter. But the expression here would seem to mean that they... They became dissatisfied with their habitation for some reason. They became dissatisfied and they voluntarily decided they would change it. That was sin. And so God punished them for that, for that sin. Now, that's about all we know about these angels that, that sin. But it's very clear from, the, from these circumstances that... Uh, Judgment was passed on these angels. We go back to, to verse 4, or there, Jude 6, but if you go to, to 2 Peter 2 and verse 4, 
For if God spared not, in other words, God didn't spare them. He spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Now, the word hell there, if you've ever studied it, you know that particular form of the word hell is tartaru, which is similar to Hades that we know. We know no Hades, Hades from the the account of the rich man and Lazarus, that that's where the rich man and Lazarus sent. There was a great gulf dividing it two and two. Lazarus was sent to a comforting side of it. The rich man was sent to a torment side of it. Well, Tartaru, by definition, is the deepest abyss of Hades. So you could rightly say that God put them under Hades. He put them in the deepest part. So the, the fact that they were judged harshly and were put in a place of torment cannot be in dispute. Now, I don't know why Peter chose to use this, this wording to convey this, this idea, but God, the Bible says, delivered them to chains of darkness. Again, in Jude chapter 6, it says that he hath reserved and everlasting chains under darkness, under Hades, in the darkest abyss of Hades, uh, unto the judgment of that great day. <clears throat> so we again, we see that this is similar in, in the scriptures in their uh, description in Luke chapter 16, 19 through 31 of the rich man and Lazarus. So... Peter's parallel here is that if God spared not these angels, if he didn't spare them, then what's going to be the end of the false teachers? That's, that's, the, that's the parallel that Peter's making here. If these angels were placed in the darkest abyss of Hades because of their sin, then what do you suppose is going to be the end of false teachers? <clears throat> Now let's consider for a little bit Peter's reference to the time around the flood or the time right before the flood. <clears throat> in Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, the Bible says, And God saw that the wickedness of, a man, of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he hath made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man who have, whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Have you ever thought about the fact that uh, this was the state of man right before the flood? And it angered God, it repented him so much that he was prepared to wipe the whole thing out. And start over. We think we live in a in a evil time, and and we do live in an evil time today. But the Bible here says that every man, I guess outside, you could make the argument outside of Noah and his family, every person on the earth, the imaginations of their heart was evil all the time. That's the world they live in. In Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 11, the Bible says, The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, 
For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. All flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. So in these few scriptures that we've read, the Bible says the wickedness of man was great. The intent of his heart was evil continually, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It grieved God so much that he found it necessary to destroy both man and animal. Now, how did the animal sin? We don't know. But God felt it necessary to wipe them all out. So again, what's Peter's parallel here? His parallel is if God destroyed the whole world for ungodliness, what's he going to do to false teachers? That's what he, the conclusion he expects us to draw from his writings. If, if God destroyed the whole world for ungodliness, what's he going to do to these false teachers? How are they going to be judged? <clears throat> Peter also said in, in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1 that they were denying the Lord that bought them. Jesus Paid for our sin. The Lord bought them. And Peter said they deny him. They deny him. Even though he bought them. Continuing on in verse 11. The earth was also corrupted before God. And and earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth. And behold it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. But even in this case, we see a hope because of Noah. Because of Noah and his family, we see a hope. So even though the whole world's going to be destroyed, the righteous, God knows, God understands how to spare the righteous. Same, same as he, he does with, with other people. So what's this tell us? In that final day of judge, judgment, even though we know that all unrighteousness is going to be destroyed, the Bible says that God is going to come and the Lord is going to come in flaming fire, taking his vengeance. We'll see that a little bit later. The earth is going to be up, burned up. All the elements are going to melt with fervent heat. How does he save the righteous? We don't know, but he can because he's done it before. He can do it again. First Peter chapter uh, 3 and verse 20. Which sometimes were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved. Eight out of how many? We don't know. But we understand fully that there were only eight that were saved. So God understands and he fully knows how to save the righteous in the face of the ungodly. He took notice of Noah in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Are we finding grace in the eyes of the Lord today? We better be. I pray we are. Because that's what was necessary for Noah and his family to be saved. Noah was known as one who walked with God. But think about the circumstances that he was in. Think about the world that he lived in. And yet, even in spite of all that, all that wickedness around him, he walked with God. He was known as a preacher of righteousness. 
even though to our knowledge, no one ever listened to him outside of his family. No one, not a single soul. He was still a preacher of righteousness. Are we preachers of righteousness? We were talking this evening about about how some people just won't hear. They don't want to listen to it. And we get very discouraged, and we want to throw up our hands and quit. But Noah was a preacher of righteousness. In spite of the fact that no one listened to them, he kept preaching righteousness until the day that God shut him up in the ark. So all the while God was bringing judgment on the ungodly, he didn't lose sight of the godly. All the time that he was pronouncing judgment, he provided deliverance from judgment for the righteous. <clears throat> and we're, we are encouraged to remain faithful in two ways. Not only will God bring an end, a judgment upon false teachers, but he will also preserve those who remain faithful. Finally, Peter parallels the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. <clears throat> the Bible says that he turned them into ashes. <clears throat> we see this in uh, Genesis chapter 19, verses 24, and it's a, it's a very vivid description. <clears throat> the Bible says, Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back, the Bible says, from behind him and, he became, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord and he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and beheld and lo, the smoke of the country and went up as the smoke of a furnace. Can you imagine what Abraham saw? That's a pretty vivid description of the end of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham was standing upon a place where he could see it all. And instead of seeing cities, instead of seeing burning cities, what he saw was a furnace. That's a pretty vivid description. Why this terrible judgment? <clears throat> Jude again in Jude chapter seven, uh, verse 7 says that even as Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities about them in the like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So the Bible says, Jude, Jude writes that uh, because of sexual immorality, fornication, that's one of the reasons that... Uh, Maybe the reason that God chose to destroy them. Genesis 18 and 20 says that the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous. Whatever that, whatever that means. But the Bible writes that the Lord said that their sin was extremely grievous. So both Peter and Jude make the same point. And that point is this. Chapter 2, verse 2. Second uh, Peter 2 verse 6 an example Peter writes an example unto those after should live ungodly you want to live ungodly you enjoy that ungodly life that's what you enjoy that's what you look forward to 
Peter says it's an example of what's going to happen. It's an example of what your end is going to be, what your judgment's going to be. Jude writes, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Same thing. You want to live that way? That's what you want to enjoy? That's the life you want to lead? It's an example. You see your end. You see what's coming for you. But God delivered Noah, and he delivered Lot. In 2 Peter 2 and verse 7, and delivered just Lot, vexed with filthy conversation, out of the wicked. So here we see another example of God able to deliver the righteous in the face of judgment. Now, I don't know about you, but of all the times I've read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the, the situation surrounding them, I, uh, I probably have a lot of times been very lacking in uh, my estimation of Lot. Pretty easy for me to say, well, you know, he kind of got what he asked for. You look at when he departed from Abraham, and the Bible says that Lot looked out toward the plain of Jordan, saw it was well watered and a, and a good place to, to have cattle and livestock, and he said, I'll go that way. You, you could make an argument that it seems kind of selfish. Seemed like he kind of was selfish there. You look at the situation that was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah and you say, why didn't he leave? Why didn't he get his family together and leave? Why did he stay even knowing that? And you look at the the end of that that, uh, scripture and it talks about those angels that came to them. They had to get them by the hand and drag them out. Why? Why didn't he want to leave? Well, I I guess I looked at Lot in a, in a way that apparently God did not look at him. Because Peter says right here in these verses three times that Lot was righteous. This is the first. He talks about just Lot. That word just, it's the same Greek word as righteous. Same exact word. He says in verse 8, for that righteous man dwelling among them. That righteous man. He's talking about Lot. Also in that verse, he says, vexed his righteous soul. Three times the Bible refers to Lot as being righteous. So maybe we ought to give Lot the benefit of the doubt. God knew that Lot was a righteous man. And he pulled him out of a judgment situation and made a way of escape for him because of that. The Bible says he was oppressed by the awful conduct that was around him. You feel that way sometimes in the world today? You feel kind of oppressed by what's going on in the world? It says that his soul was tormented from day to day by seeing the evil that was around him. Sound familiar? But if we are righteous, God will make a way for us to escape the same judgment. So this leads Peter to summarize in verse 9 
about the about his what he what he understands about these things and that is that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation he shows us that through Noah and Lot he encourages us encourages us to remain faithful the Lord knows how to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment we'll talk about that in just a moment we notice that in these three cases we've considered that the unjust are, are reserved under punishment. And this suggests that the wicked are tormented during this state between death and resurrection. The angels were not spared from it. We know from Luke 16 and 19 through 31 that wicked people are not spared from it. Only the righteous, only the just are spared from it. So let me ask you, doesn't this serve as a warning for us today? Doesn't this serve as a warning not only to false teachers, but those who might be tempted to follow false teaching? Does it not serve as a warning for us to be dedicated and devout in making sure that we're not being led astray by false teachers? So what does it mean for us today? What does this teaching mean for us today? Well, certainly it warns anyone not to be or become a false teacher. Certainly it warns, warns against that. Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, the Bible says, that Paul writes to the Galatians, But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Paul thought it was so important that you understand that scripture that in the next scripture he repeated those words exactly word for word. The same scripture repeated again. Though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that we have preached, let him be accursed. That's the end of false teachers. That's the destiny of false teachers. <clears throat> Paul also wrote to Timothy about the nature of false teachers in 1st Timothy chapter 6 and verse beginning in verse 3 if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness he is proud now here's you, here's you some characteristics that you'll notice about these folks he is proud knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words whether, wherefore cometh envy strife railings evil surmisings this is the nature of false teachers. That's what Paul told Timothy. But he also told him something else. In verse 5, ultimately, we are responsible. We can't, we can't blame it on, well, I didn't know he was a false teacher. Well, we have to know. We have to learn. We have to seek out these things. Paul writes to Timothy, Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. Now listen, from such withdraw thyself. Get away from them. Recognize them and get away from them. Ultimately, we are responsible for our own destiny. We're responsible to seek out false teachers and make sure that we're not following them. And finally, what does this mean to us? God's will will be done. His justice will be performed. 
in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10, we see a, a group of people that were, were apparently in, in Hades, in the comforted side of Hades, I guess you could say. And the Bible says, and they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Apparently they were somewhat impatient. And they were looking at the wickedness that still went on in the earth. And they knew that they were righteous. And they said, how long will this not be avenged? And isn't that the nature of mankind? We want things avenged. We want justice done. And we want it done now. That's the nature of mankind. When you have been wronged, you want vengeance taken. You want justice to be performed on the spot immediately. But we see that even in this case that apparently God's timeline was not what these people's timeline was. Because he said in Romans chapter 12 and verse 19, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine and I will repay, saith the Lord. Jesus says, Don't avenge yourself. I'll take care of that. I'll take care of it. Maybe he doesn't take care of it when we think he ought to, but his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. He will avenge. His justice will be done. Our responsibility is to make sure that we're not led astray. Our hope is that in righteousness, we will not be led astray. We will be judged righteous. And vengeance will be taken at a later time on our behalf. It's not up to us. But even in this, Peter is not through with his warnings about false teachers. We've described their nature, their destructiveness. We've talked about their judgment, their destiny today. But there's more that Peter will say on these matters that will continue at a later time. What can we conclude about these scriptures? We don't want to be on the side of false teachers. We don't want to be a part of them. And we don't want to follow them. And we want to be diligent in so doing. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you have questions about what you have heard. Or would like to know more information please contact us by emailing cfcwheelerarea at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook or Instagram and send us a message there.